If you're not there already, you can <clears throat> find your way to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. We, uh, for those of you who are visiting, we are working our way through the Gospel of John, and uh, we are intentionally dragging our feet through this glorious prayer that the Lord Jesus has for his disciples and ultimately for us. We find ourselves in John 17, 14 to 16, so if you uh, needed one of the church Bibles, there should be one close by in front of you. It's on page 1456, 1456, beginning in verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word, them being the disciples, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask him for help. O oh Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your instruction. Lord, teach us from this ancient inspired text. Help us to see the glory of the Lord Jesus more fully that we might respond with faith and repentance. Lord, grant Conviction where conviction is needed, repentance where repentance is needed, <clears throat> comfort, hope, and encouragement where that is needed. Lord, I trust you to sort all this out well beyond the knowledge and skill of the messenger. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. During my childhood, my parents as long as I can remember, always had a garden in the backyard. I can remember many a springtime manning the rotor tiller or taking the spade, tilling that garden up. Many a time on my hands and knees, pulling out the weeds. <clears throat> and so when I entered into my adulthood, I made sure that I didn't have a garden in my backyard <clears throat> until... The Bidenflation program, uh, which has made me into something of an urban farmer. And so this year I have this tiny little garden in my backyard. And one of the things that I've discovered with my garden is that there are many enemies to the productivity of my garden. Sometimes it's obviously the weeds in the garden that seek to draw out the nutrients from the soil so that my plants don't grow as they could. Sometimes it's a little fungus that gets on the, 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 the leaves of my plants or it can even be beetles. Sometimes even, wouldn't you know, even in Youngstown, Ohio, deers come along to the hostility of my neighbor. No names to be mentioned there's many enemies to the fruitfulness and the productivity of my garden. Well, in a similar way, there's many enemies to the productivity of the Christian. And it's so Jesus, as, as he prays for his disciples, he prays for their protection. Much in the same way, I think of the different times in which I'm away from my family and traveling uh, and we're separated geographically. Uh, the most frequent pray, prayer that I pray for them is for their protection. I'm concerned about them. I'm concerned about their well-being. In a similar way, as Jesus anticipates his bodily departure from this world, as he is going to die on the cross the next morning, as he's going to rise from the dead and 40 days later to ascend into heaven, 
He is not going to be bodily with them anymore and so he's concerned about their well-being and so he prays for them. He prays for their protection and he prays for you today for your protection as he's not bodily with us, as he's not physically present although he's spiritually present as to his divine nature, he prays and intercedes before and on behalf of his people at the right hand of the Father. And so this prayer, Jesus intentionally prays out loud. And John intentionally remembers and records this prayer so that we would hear the heartbeat of our Savior and that we would draw encouragement and that we would trust and rest in his prayers for us. And so this morning we're going to spend our time pondering three reasons why we need to rest in Jesus' prayer for us. We need to rest in his mediatorial work, his, his high priestly work of interceding on behalf of us. The first reason is our dislocation from the world. Our dislocation from the world. That's an interesting way to put it, to be dislocated. I think it was last year around this time, my sister-in-law actually dislocated her elbow. That sounds painful where her, her elbow joint was out of joint. Or, or, or maybe you've had a dislocated shoulder at one point. It, it's, it's separated from the joint. It's not where it's supposed to be. It's not where it normally is at. Well, believers in the Lord Jesus are dislocated from the world. They're out of joint from the world. They're separated from the world. And that's intentionally so, but it doesn't come without the pain and hostility of the world, as we'll see. And so, notice verse 14, as Jesus is praying, he says, he's talking to the Father, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And he, he repeats this phrase in verse 16. He says, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. So he's praying to the Father and again, the disciples are listening and ultimately John records this so that we would have it and that we would understand that, that believers in the Lord Jesus are not of the world. They have been taken out of the world. They have been dislocated from the world. And notice in verse 14, Jesus connects this dislocation from the world or them not being of the world with the reality that he has given them, he says, I have given them, at the beginning of verse 14, I have given them your word. This is what, what part of what sets the believer apart from the world. We have the voice of God in the scriptures we have the revelation of God and that radically changes the way we think, the way we believe, the way we live, the way we walk in this world. It gives us a different accent. You know, sometimes you come across somebody and you, they open their mouth, you hear them speak and all of a sudden there's this pronounced accent and you realize you ain't from around here, is you? That in a very similar way, the word of God gives the believer a different accent in this world that makes us different, that makes us outsiders. We have different standards of right and wrong. We have different convictions. We have a different purpose in this world. And that makes us different from the rest of the world and often provokes the world's hostility. Now, when this term world is used, you have to understand John often uses the world in, in different senses throughout the Gospel of John. I think it's quite clear, quite obvious within this context that John means the world as this world system of unbelief. Basically the fallen world all around us. 
the fallen world that began in Genesis chapter 3 when, when Adam and Eve were seduced into rebelling against the Creator and they carried with them all of humanity and it's this world system that is under the, the blindfolds of the, the evil one himself. Well, it's that world that, that believers have been dislocated from, separated from. Jesus speaks of the world in this sense in in 18:23, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 8 verse 23 of the Gospel of John when he says to these religious leaders, "You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world." This is the same language Jesus now uses of his own disciples. They are not of the world. Now, As we observe in the Gospel of John, they were part of the world. In John 15, Jesus says of his own disciples, I chose you out of the world. And this is part of the reason why the world hates you. So they were part of the world as we're all born in this world system of unbelief, but are taken out of the world by the power of the Spirit when the gospel, when, when, when we hear the gospel and believe in the Holy Spirit, regenerates the heart, makes one born again, all of a sudden there's this divorcing of the world. And notice even in verse 15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So he's, he's talking to the Father. I, I, he says, I'm not asking that you would take them out of the world. So, so while the believer is not of the world, they are still in the world and intentionally still in the world. God wants you to be in the world but not of the world. God wants you to be separate from the world, but still within arm's reach and, dare I say, earshot of the world. So that, we find this out within this context, part of the rationale Jesus lays out in verse 17 and following, he prays, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And then verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. That part of the rationale of us staying in the world is to be a mission to the world, to reach this world, so that others might come out of the world. But it's of the utmost necessity that we be distinct from the world, lest we become just like the world. And there's always a seduction around us to become like the rest of the world, to believe the same things the world around us believes, to live the same way the world around us lives. And again, I'm, I'm not talking about mere superficial externals that, that, that so often in especially legalistic circles worldliness is communicated you know that you know you don't dress a certain way you don't have a certain hair style and that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about the worldly system of, of unbelieving ideologies that, that captivate this world that, that Satan spins out and people just gobble up and believe No, no, the believer is supposed to be distinct from the world. The Apostle Paul says in in Romans chapter 12, he says, In view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God. This is your spiritual service of worship. And then in verse 2 he says, And do not be what? Conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. This is the idea. This is, this is what Jesus is praying that we would be distinct from the world. Separate from the world. In the world so that we can reach the world but to be distinct from the world. And 
A.W. Pink is helpful at this point. He lays out seven different ways in which the believer is distinct from the world. And there's probably more, but seven's a good number, right? It's a biblical number. Christians have a different standing from those who belong to the world. Uh, the, The world, their standing is under Adam. In Adam all die. In Adam all are guilty. But the believer, their representative is Jesus. And and we've been united to him and we're represented by him so that we have a, a standing of righteousness before God. We possess a different nature. Those of this world have a nature that is born of the flesh. A nature that is corrupt. A nature that is enslaved to sin and rebellion against the creator but the believer has a nature that has been renewed that has been regenerated reborn in such a way that there's new desires new affections new appetites that are godward we serve a different master jesus says in john 8 you are of your father what the devil And you do the desires of your father. But those who've been taken out of the world, they serve a different master. We call him Lord Jesus Christ. He is our king. He is our master. We have a different aim. Those in the world... Aim to serve their idols. Aim to serve self. But the believer who has a renewed mind now has a renewed purpose to live whether we eat or drink to do all what? To the glory of God. We live for the honor, the praise, the applause of the triune God. We have a different citizenship. The Apostle Paul says to the audience in Philippi, But our citizenship is what? In heaven. Where we eagerly await the Savior. This world as it is is not ultimately our home. We are citizens of another land. We have a different life. Certainly the Christian never lives as he ought to live in this world, but nonetheless, the direction of our life is different as we seek to subject ourselves to God's word and to live according to his standards. And ultimately, we have a different destiny. A different destiny. As it is those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who bowed their knee to Jesus, claimed the promise that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Different destinies. A destiny that ends in eternal unending joy and happiness and fellowship with the creator God in a world that's, that's been renewed and is not tainted by sin whereas those who are in the world have a destiny under the hand of God's judgment in hell forever. And so you can see that there's tremendous differences between those who are in the world and not of the world and those who are of the world. And so perhaps just by me going through those seven differences, you're sitting here this morning and you're realizing, I think I'm of the world. Well, Jesus left us here just for you. (laughs) To give you this message that you don't have to be of the world. You can come out of the world. This world that is headed for judgment. That Jesus is going to come back on a white horse. Treading the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. And he's going to bring this world under judgment. You can come out of that world. If you but turn to the Lord Jesus and bow your knee to him. And you trust him as your only hope to be forgiven of all your rebellions. How glad you Gladly yank you 
out of the world. But for those of us who have been taken out of this world by no merit of our own, by no goodness of our own, but God in his mercy has plucked us out of the world, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. In this context, remember Jesus prays, sanctify them in what? The truth. Set them apart from the world with your truth. And there's all kinds of ideologies and unbelieving garbage and rubbish that's floating all around us that's biding for your attention, that's biding for you to believe in and to embrace it. And we must stand fast against it. The world around us for many years now has been trying to get God's people to embrace the ideology of feminism, which is actually anti-woman, and to propagate the idea that, well, there's no real difference between men and women. They're essentially the same, and anything that a man can do, a woman can do. Anything a, a woman can do, a man can do as well. Except... I cannot grow another human being inside of my body. Nor can I feed that same human being with my body. Oh, we forgot about that. A woman can't deadlift 600 pounds. Well, you may say not many men can do that either. And you may be able to find some woman who could do that. And I would suggest to you that she's being injected with male hormones. That's why she's able to do that. God has made these beautiful differences between men and women. And there's these ideologies that, that try to, to, to destroy that beautiful image of God in humanity that makes men and women distinct and, and wonderful and beautiful compliments to one another and we have to stand fast against that and say, no, no, God made us different. And this is a beautiful thing. This is not something that's, that we should be averse to and kick against. God's word said it all along. In the beginning, God created man. He made them male and female from the beginning. Of course, I don't need to talk to you about the worldly ideologies of all manner of sexual perversion. And increasingly, the world wants God's people to bow down to. And isn't it a fascinating thing that sex is popular everywhere except inside the marriage bed where God has placed it. And so Christians today, we need to stand fast against all the unbelieving ideologies, not in a self-righteous kind of way where we stand over and, as if we're smarter than the rest of the world, but, but because we are guided by God's truth, we stand against all these worldly ideologies and say, no, I don't believe that. I don't Go along with that. Why? Because the voice of Almighty God has spoken in His Word and He's made it clear. It's not because I'm smarter than you, but because God is smarter than both of us. And so the believer is dislocated from the world. And this is, by the way, why we need Jesus to pray for us. You know, it's often when we're in the time of need and difficulty will you pray for me you don't have to ask Jesus to pray for you but it might be a good idea he's praying for his disciples here he he according to the author of Hebrews he ever lives to make intercession for us and yes some of that high priestly intercession is his pardoning prayers as he intercepts our sin because he is that propitiatory sacrifice he paid in full and so we can stand before God accepted but also we see here he's praying very practical tangible prayers for his own because he knows your greatest needs 
He knew the needs of his disciples. He knew the encroachment of the world that would be pressing down upon them. And he's praying for their well-being. Friend, you need to lean into Jesus' prayers. You need to lean into his word. You need to have humility. If, If Jesus let the world have you, it would have you. You stand distinct from the world only because God is keeping you. And that should humble you. That should humble me. Secondly, the detestation of the world. Not only the dislocation from the world, the detestation of the world. You see that very plainly in verse 14. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. The world has hated them. That there is hostility from the world of unbelief towards believers. Did you ever notice Islam gets a free pass in the world? (laughs) All kinds of religions, yeah. Yeah, blow up buildings, cities. Islam's a great thing. Islam has a, you know, often Christians get railed against because of their views about men and women being different and different roles and all of that and part of God's design. But, I mean, think of the way in which Islam treats women as chattel. Yet it gets free pass. Why? It's part of the unbelieving world system. Jesus says the world will hate you. In 1 John 3.13 says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. It shouldn't be a shocker. We have brothers and sisters across this globe who are incarcerated. Parents who are being separated from their children, jailed because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. People being beaten to a bloody pulp because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. There have been more martyrs in the past 100 years than all of church history previous to that combined. Now part of that is because there's more people in the world. I get that. But nonetheless, you understand the reality that Hatred and animosity from the world is nothing new. But in this country, we've lived in a bubble of, of, of so much of the Christian roots and foundations in this country and, and the realities of religious freedom that we, we have experienced such minimal hostility. But in case you hadn't noticed, a lot of that's coming to an end. John 15, verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also, the believer can and will experience the animosity of this world. Some of you, this has happened to you when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, animosity from family members, friends, hostility. A.W. Pink again says, once Christians were of the world, they followed its course and were fully conformed to its policies, its principles, its aims. But grace has delivered them from this present evil world that they have new affections, new interests, and a new master. They have been separated from the world and in proportion as they follow Christ, their lives condemn the world. Therefore, 
does the world hate them. It secretly plots against them. It inwardly curses them. It says all manner of evil against them. It opposes them. It rejoices when any evil befalls them. And so friends, this is, this is very important because we often have an innate desire to be accepted. I mean, nobody wants to be an outcast, right? Nobody likes to be rejected. And often that desire for acceptance and and approval reaches idolatrous proportions in our heart. It becomes idolatrous because we're willing to sin or compromise in order to get it or sin if we don't get it. But Jesus is flat out telling us, he's speaking plainly, the world will hate you. Don't, in other words, don't try to be accepted by the world. Don't try to win the approval of the world. It's not going to happen. And again, this is so often the seduction of, of so many of our brothers and sisters in evangelical Christianity to try to accommodate to the world, to win the world, but instead of winning the world, they become like the world. And guess what? The world never gets won. And more importantly than that, it is infidelity to the master. It's unfaithfulness to Jesus to seek to be accepted by the world and to compromise the beliefs and convictions we should have that make us distinct from the world that actually even provoke their hatred. Now, again, we, as we've been learning in the Sunday school hour, I understand there's some things that people in the world may practice that may be unnecessarily offensive. You know, Brother John was saying this morning that you know, people from South Korea are offended when you summon people this way. It's like that's how you talk to your dog, Okay. Well, I, you know, I can accommodate that and not compromise. Here, come here, rather than come here, okay? There's certain things that are unnecessarily offensive that, that, that we can accommodate so as not to be unnecessarily offensive, but there's some things that we can't. When God has spoken in his word, we can't fudge on that. We can't smear the lines. And dare I would say, the most loving thing to do is make the line clear, If you're going to become a Christian, you need to cross this line. You need to repent and believe what God has said. And so, friend, again, even if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, you need to understand that if you are going to follow Jesus, there is going to be a counting of the cost. Because you will not be accepted by this world. That's part of what you sign up for when you become a Christian. You're divorcing this world. And your allegiance is to a new master. And he is a kind master. He gave his life for you. But nonetheless, he is a new master. And so, count the cost. Make sure... You're willing to die to the smiles of this world. But also, Christian, we also need to be willing to die to the smiles of this world. This often comes up in the context where maybe an opportunity to speak a word for Christ comes our way. And that kind of little voice in your head They're going to think I'm a Jesus freak. They're going to think I'm some kind of weirdo. Well, guess what? They probably already think you're a weirdo. But just die to that. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Jesus is far bigger than than your acceptance. 
Fear him. Do not fear him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. Fear Jesus. He's the king. Well, moving along, we need Jesus' prayer. We need Jesus' prayer of protection for us because of the dislocation from the world, the detestation of the world, but then third and last, the devil over the world. Verse 15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Now notice Jesus says, again, I'm going to reiterate, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And again, this is sometimes a temptation for us. We see the darkness of this world. We see the trajectory of this world. And we think, God, just take me home. I'm good. We'll be together. Just take me. We encounter the difficulties of this world, whether it's the physical sufferings of this world, whether it's seeing this, this, uh, our own culture being run into the ground. We see the, these uh, kind of uh, uh, experimentations that are taking place uh, with, with young people and, 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 and them being sold this notion that, that a boy can become a girl and a girl can become a boy and we're just saying, what on earth is happening in this world? Please take me home. Jesus says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. They're good just right where they are. <laughs> this was Elijah's experience. Remember 1 Kings 19, 4? I mean, he was dealing with that woman Jezebel. He's sitting up under the juniper tree and he asked God, God, let me die. Remember that one? It is enough, O Lord! Take my life! For am I not better than my father's? He lay down, took a nap under the juniper tree. He wakes up. Behold, there's an angel touching him. He says, get up. Have a snack. God didn't take him home. His work wasn't done yet. I do not pray that you take them out of the world. The Apostle Paul, he's awaiting possible execution as he's uh, incarcerated, as it's recorded at the end of the book of Acts. It's a kind of house arrest situation. And he says to the Philippians, as he's giving them a kind of a missionary newsletter in in the book of Philippians, he says, for me to live is Christ and, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions. I have the desire to depart and to be with Christ for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He wants to go home. But he knows he probably should stay. J.C. Ryle points out three of the only prayers not granted to saints recorded in the scripture are the prayers of Moses, Elijah, and Jonah to be taken out of the world. Now, I didn't do quality assurance on Bishop Ryle's assertion there. But 
It is interesting that we do see those three prayers unanswered. And so God's plan after a person comes to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is not beam me up, Scotty. Ready to go home. No, Jesus says, I pray that you would not take them out of the world. Keep them there. And he says in the following verses, just as I was sent into the world, so I send them into the world. You are here. The the one thing you cannot do in heaven is reach a lost and dying world. There is no evangelism in heaven. Nobody sent from heaven to hell to be a missionary. It don't work that way. Even we get a glimpse of that in, in, in that, that section in Luke chapter 16 where the man in the place of torment is begging for Lazarus to cross over that chasm and to, to go to his brothers and to tell them to repent. But there's no turning back. Here is the one place we have an opportunity to speak the gospel, to make disciples, to snatch people from the fire. And so we should take advantage of that, friends. It's something you'll never regret. I remember reading Spurgeon talk about that. He says, you never regret telling somebody the gospel. Isn't that true in your experience? Now, I've regretted how I've said it in times past. But I've never regretted actually speaking the gospel to somebody. Never. I've always come away. I'm glad I said something. I should have said it better. Shouldn't have said that. But I'm glad I said it. But then the heart of Jesus' prayer here. Oh, one more quote. This is so good. I got to say this one. This is a guy, I think his name's Charles Ross. He says, And oh, how much mercy of God to sinners is thus to be seen leaving objects of his love in the sinful, persecuting world that they may bless it with their life and their testimony. It is true indeed that the world does not think so. Right gladly would it get rid of God's witnesses. Nevertheless, the fact that it remains that it is For their sakes that the world is permitted to stand. The old world could not be destroyed with the deluge until Noah was safe in the ark. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain could not be destroyed with fire and brimstone until Lot is taken and placed beyond all danger. But woe to the old world once God has shut Noah in the ark. Woe to the cities on the plain once Lot has reached Zoar. And in the like manner, woe to an ungodly world when God has taken his own home. It will be fit only for the burning. Yes, it will be. Yes, it is an unspeakable mercy to the world that the Lord leaves his objects of love for a time in it. It is a mercy of God to this world that you are here in the world while not being of the world. And so be an agent of God's mercy. But Jesus' prayer here, in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. To keep them from the evil one. Now there is some measure of debate whether Jesus is praying that you would keep them from evil or keep them from the evil one. I'm convinced in my mind because of the definite article in front of the world that it's the evil one. That that this is similar to what John uh, says in 1 John 5.18. He says, no one who is born of God sins, that is continues in sin, but he who is born of God keeps him And the evil one, that's the same phrase there, the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about, he's just been talking about the world, and now he looks beyond the world to that which lies behind the world, the unseen realm of the devil. The unseen realm of the one who is called in Jesus' words in numerous passages in John 12, 31, 14, 30, 16, 11, namely, the ruler of this world. Or even in the language of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says the God of this age has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. We read that and say the God of this age. If we stop there, we would think, well, it's talking about the Lord God, right? No, it's not. The God of this age who has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. Or how about Ephesians 2? But you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to what? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's often referred to as the ruler of this world, the prince of this world, the God of this age. God has given Satan a long leash in this world. And he is the one who lies behind this world system of unbelief. He is the one who has been railing against the Lord God since the day of his fall. He is the one who jumps upon the scene uh, in the scriptures in Genesis chapter 3 in the form of a serpent and he seduces Adam and Eve to rebellion against him. He knows that his destiny is in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone forever and ever and he's trying to take as many people with him as he can. And while... He cannot grab a hold of a genuine believer and drag him into the pit of hell. He can do quite a bit of damage to paralyze, to make that believer unfruitful. He can do quite a bit of damage of Sowing seeds of doubt and unbelief. In fact, Peter warns of this, right? In 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Wake up! Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Peter says the devil is a roaring lion. He's a, a lion prowling. I mean, I mean, imagine if you were going to your car and before you exit this building, somebody tells you there's a lion outside. What kind of caution would you be taking? I mean, all your, I mean, you leave your children wander all over this building. But you tell them there's a lion outside. You know, your brood of children is going to be close by your side. And even if you, if you dare to go to your car, it's going to be a watchful, you know, you're going to be running into the car, making sure you get in the car, and you're going to be putting the pedal to the metal as fast as you can to get out of here. You are no match for a lion. You think you're sweet. You may have all manner of self-defense classes under your belt. But you're no match for a lion. Jesus knows that. And see, this, this is important because the reality is, is that in our evangelical world, you know, you typically have the charismatics on the one hand who someone gets a sinus effect, infection. I'm, I'm being assaulted by the demon of sinus infections. You pray for me. 
And then you have on the other extreme, in our more conservative, Protestant, Reformed circles where, oh, God's in control. As if the devil didn't exist. But you know the reality, the truthfulness of Scripture is that the devil is a very real threat. Yes, he's, as Luther said, God's devil. His leash only moves as far as God permits. But nonetheless, he can wreak tremendous havoc in the believer's life. Maybe not him personally, but he has his diabolical armed forces. I mean, most of us are not that important that the devil himself would be, you know, lurking around our basement. But he has, he has his demons. And think about it, the devil is thousands of years old. I mean, he's thousands of years old, but he, he, his cognition never deteriorates. And so he's been observing humanity for thousands of years. I mean, think about it. You know all the weaknesses and sins of your children or your spouse. Or your friends, right? You know all, all about it. How much more does Satan know? How much more do the demons all around? If they wanted to seduce you into any kind of sin, get you at your moment of weakness, you would be like a little lamb before a lion. You need Jesus to pray for you. You need to be watchful, Yes. But if Jesus didn't pray for you, you'd be a goner. Jesus prays protection. We see this couple examples, a couple biblical examples. Remember the book of Job? There's this conversation in chapter 1 that's taking place in heaven that Job never knows about, right? Have you considered my servant Job? Satan says, yeah. He only follows you because look at all the stuff you give him. Take away the stuff. No. He'll deny you. So God says, okay. Have at him. God loosens the leash upon Satan so much that you remember those people keep coming to Job's doorstep over and over telling him that his, his, basically all of his assets have been stolen, everything's destroyed, and then that climactic, a storm has come and, has, and, and, and the building has collapsed upon his ten children, they're all dead. And all that Job did not turn away from the Lord, right? He cries out, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And then God allows Satan to afflict him physically and so that he has boils on the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. But because of God's restraining power, Job does not turn away. And Satan only goes as far as God permits him to go. We see this as well. Remember when the end of the Gospel of Luke, when Peter is informed that one of them is going to deny the Lord Jesus and Peter's like, not me. Me and you, Jesus, we're tight. We're good. And Jesus informs Peter that Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But, Peter, what? I have prayed for you so that when you turn back, and you will turn back. Why, Peter? Because you're such a swell fellow. You're so loyal to me. You're so committed. No. When you turn back, because I prayed for you, you strengthen the brothers. 
Peter was utterly dependent upon the intercession of the Lord Jesus. Had Jesus allowed Peter, he would have totally turned. Friends, Satan is allowed to nip at the heels of genuine believers. He's just not allowed to get a hold of him, of them, and drag them to hell. Friend, has Satan been nipping at your heels? He has. Are you aware of it? What are the temptations that are surrounding you? What are the seductions that, that, that keep coming your way? Are you fighting against these temptations? Are you begging for Jesus' his intercession on your behalf? You think of Pilgrim's Progress and Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He's walking along the path and, and, I, and I can't remember the exactness of it. Somebody will, I'm sure, help me out later. But, but I remember there was two monsters that are coming at him. And at least in the original version, one is named Pope. <laughs> There's a tip off. And the other's named Pagan. And as long as he stays on the path, they come and, and they, it looks like they're going to eat him alive. But he comes to find out each of them is on a chain. And they can only go so far. And if he stays on the path, they won't eat him alive. Apollyon lurks. Thomas Manton says, keep them from the author of evil, from evil itself, from sin, from the power of the snares of the devil, from destruction until their course is run. Satan is the author, the world is the bait, sin is the hook. Keep them from the devil that they may not come under his power, from the world that they may not be deceived by its allurements. Oh, child of God, do you know the enemies of your soul? Jesus does and he prays and you need to lean into that we sang it earlier Lord I need you do you really believe that or do you walk do you strut with a kind of creaturely confidence in this world my friend you ought to walk with a limp a hobble You are utterly dependent upon the prayers of Jesus. According to legend and maybe fact, the story goes like this. There used to be a painting in the Louvre Museum in Paris, France. It was called Checkmate. And it's a picture of somebody playing chess with the devil. And it's called checkmate. And the assumption for many years was that the devil had won. And then evidently, as legend goes, there was some chess master who was visiting the loo and he's observing the picture and he's looking at all the chess pieces and, and, and he, he's trying to figure it out and he realizes it's actually not the devil who has checkmate. But the opposition is one move away from checkmate on the devil. The Christian is one move away from checkmate. You see, Jesus in his death upon the cross has conquered death through his death and resurrection. And one day Jesus will come back in his glory and incarcerate Satan. And it goes all the way back to that promise way back in Genesis chapter 3 where the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent's head. It's just one move away. Friend, lean into that move. Let's pray.
Lord God Almighty, we thank you for Jesus' prayers. Lord, we are a needy people. Our hearts are so weak, so easily seduced by sin. We desperately need your prayers, your intercession. We thank you that in Jesus we are secure, but not so secure that we ought not to see the danger, the dangers of this world, the dangers of the prince of this world. So Lord, help us to be on guard and help us to be humble before you. In Jesus' name, amen.